What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, Wipe out! I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today, you guys aren't going to be able to depend on me to be my normal plucky self, because I've got kind of a bad cold, so I'm sorry that I'm even talking in your general direction right now, but I <laughs> well, suppose the show must go on. Well, yeah, and, and Joe, it's it's kind of it's kind of fitting that that you are uh, a little out of out of play here, right? Because we're going to revisit a topic that Lauren and I talked about. Uh, gravitational waves, and you weren't here for that episode. Good, just act like I'm not here. So today. yeah, so yeah, mentally you know. you're you're again not in the room. That's, yeah, not, that's good. Of no, course, last no, time you were on vacation, you're which always was wonderful and now fine and excellent. Yes. I, I'm sure that you'll be a, a joy as always. But hey, gravitational waves! This was some big yes. news this month. Yes. Yeah, huge news. And actually, it's funny because the discovery happened in 2015. But as is the case with any really, you know careful, responsible, scientific inquiry, 
it took some time for uh, scientists to verify the informa- the data they had gathered yeah, yeah. before they actually announced what they had found. You yeah. know, it did, but I don't know if y'all noticed it. If you follow the uh, the I don't know science writers on Twitter yeah. or or uh, the science press in general, there were several rounds of rumors flaring up where some prominent physicist or cosmologist would sort of like drop a hint saying like I think they found gravity waves. Or gravitational gravitation, waves. Yeah, yeah, I know you're gonna you're gonna get out your red pen about that in a little <laughs> bit. Uh, yeah, and and so somebody would print a story about that, and the rumor mill would flare up, and then it would all end with, well, I guess we'll just have to wait until they announce their findings and see what happened. And but yeah, it turned out that the rumors were in this case true. Right, there was a very very strong, very well established piece of evidence for gravitational waves in the universe. Yes, a a, a, a detection that appears to be pretty much airtight. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and that was announced on February 11th. We were all eagerly waiting for the announcement. In fact, many of us were following it live as it was happening. Uh, Joe, you were tweeting about it live as it was happening, as I recall. Uh, I think I just, I retweeted some people. Gotcha. Uh, I wasn't, I wasn't live tweeting. Come on, that's a different kind <laughs> well, of thing. Well, you, you were you live there. and you yeah. were tweeting. Yeah, so you okay. weren't undead. Are <laughs> you undead? Is this what this cold is? Are you a zombie? <laughs> I'm a little bit undead right now. <laughs> got a, got so a patient I zero. All, I hope you all both brought a cross. <laughs> well, at any rate, uh, the last those time. those work on zombies? Okay, go ahead. <laughs> if, you, if you're really cross with a zombie, they take note. So uh, we originally talked about gravitational waves back in September 2014. And in that conversation... We were talking specifically about BICEP-2, which is a telescope that's in the Antarctic. Yeah, and if you remember sometime vaguely in the past, either this podcast or just other general news announcements a few years ago, and you're saying, like, wait, I thought they already discovered gravitational waves. There is a reason you're remembering that. Yeah, uh, yeah well, they, they said, hey, guys, I think that we, we, we think that we discovered gravitational waves. This is so great. And what they actually discovered was space dust. Yeah, or at least space dust was a, enough of a factor to throw their results into serious doubt. Yeah. But uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more later in the podcast. This time, we're going to really be focusing on uh, what LIGO found. Uh, LIGO is a pair of observatories, and we'll talk more about those in a minute. But before we get into any of that, perhaps it's best to actually take some time to talk about what gravitational waves are in the first place. And to understand that, you got to look back in history uh, all the way back to 1916, which is when uh, Albert Einstein uh, published his his uh, theory of general relativity. He had been working on it since 1905. Right. So Alfred Einstein was out uh, on a train one day hurling axes out the window at passing herds of buffalo. Oh, we should he, never give you cold medication before <laughs> a podcast. And he noticed that as he tossed each axe, it arced toward the ground instead of flying off in an infinite direction in which he threw it. So why does that happen? All right, uh, ignoring everything that Joe just said, uh, here's here's what Einstein was was considering. He had uh, been really thinking hard about the nature of the universe. Uh, this was part mathematics, part philosophy, uh, part just uh, just using logic to its inevitable conclusion. And it was incredible the the theory he came up with. It was it was phenomenal, and not just phenomenal, but over the years, so much of that theory has proven to be accurate to what we see in reality that 
you know, we, we just keep on supporting the various predictions that were made and gravitational waves were one of the predictions made in the theory of general relativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he had, uh, argued that, that the universe is made up of, uh, space time continuum. You've probably heard that if you've ever watched any Star Trek, you've heard about the space time continuum. But the space time continuum is, is sort of this idea of space and time together, uh, forming kind of a fabric of the universe. And matter, uh, or to be really just, just to, to talk it in the terms he used, mass can change, can, can warp space time. In fact, it does warp space time. The presence of matter warps space time. So, uh, the, the most common analogy that you tend to see is that imagine you've got a trampoline and you put a bowling ball on the trampoline, it ends up making a dimple in the trampoline. It, it sinks down where the bowling ball is resting. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, here, here, the trampoline being space time and the bowling ball being, say, a, uh, a star. Yeah, exactly. Uh, let's, let's, um, a star, black hole, anything that's got a lot of mass. And, uh, you, you, that would show you how the trampoline warps around the bowling ball like space time warps around a, an object of great mass. Keeping in mind, of course, that we're ta- using a, more or less a two dimensional representation to talk about a three dimensional concept. But it's or, really hard to imagine a three-dimensional concept. Or four-dimensional, really. Yeah, that's true, because so, you're talking about time. Yeah. It is true. Uh, but then if you were to take a, a marble, let's say, and roll it across the trampoline. Now, if it were, if there were no bowling ball on it, the marble would just roll from one side to the other, assuming that you're on level ground and all that. But with the bowling ball there, it's going to start spiraling inward toward the bowling ball. And Einstein argued that what we see with gravity, with, with uh, gravitational pull between like a star and... Uh, a planet or even the center of a galaxy and all of the, the star systems, star around, systems it, around it. Yeah. That's how they behave. They move in that same spiral. And, uh, uh, so now one difference you might observe is that you think, Hey, well, if I did that on a trampoline it probably marble would probably only spiral around the bowling ball three or four times before it crashed into it there. I would guess the difference is going to be in this example, friction between the marble and the trampoline. Well, also speed. As opposed to, yeah. And yeah. orbits in space being, you know, almost negligible amounts of friction. Yeah. That's definitely, that's definitely the case. It helps. So, what we see here is that space-time curves around objects. And then be building upon that, uh, Einstein said, if you have a large mass undergo a violent change, either it changes shape or it changes its motion in some way, in a dramatic way, uh, it creates these ripples in space-time that propagate outward at the speed of light. And these are gravitational waves. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's actual ripples in space time itself. And it's kind of like an electromagnetic wave in that it moves at that speed of light. But unlike electromagnetic waves, it can't be absorbed and it can't be scattered. Uh, yeah, it behaves in that way more like a sound wave. Yeah, exactly. So if you think of sound waves where when you hear a sound, what you're actually hearing is uh, the, the motion of air molecules. Those air molecules are being compressed by an oncoming wave, and then they expand again afterward. It's very similar to that, except we're talking about the fabric of reality itself. Now, let me play Jonathan for a second and be pedantic. It wouldn't necessarily have to be air molecules, would it? No, it'd that's also true. be whatever medium that the sound is traveling through. That's true. Yeah, it could be solid wood, and it still Tomato has soup. that compression. Axes. <laughs> Um, and, yes. and we should, we should put in that Einstein himself wasn't 
entirely sure about this gravitational wave stuff. He kind of flip-flopped on it a few times, but always came back around to support it. So uh, I, I think that he himself would be sort of tickled that we, A, came up with a way to detect them, and B, have actually detected yeah, them. Yeah, I think he would be flabbergasted, because I, I the impression I get is that Einstein was fairly certain because of the nature of gravitational waves, they would be undetectable. There'd be, there'd be no way to directly observe them because they are invisible. There's nothing. They're not like electromagnetic uh, radiation where uh, you've got a, an actual visible spectrum. Um, so I think that would have really shocked him that we had come up with a really clever way of detecting uh, the presence of gravitational waves. Now, uh, Jonathan, why is it that you have a bone to pick with anybody who calls this most recent discovery the discovery of uh, gravity waves? Well, because it's wrong. <laughs> it's, so gravity waves, you Tell might... Tell me all about the wrongness. Yeah, yeah. gravity and gravitational are two different things. Uh, with a gravitational wave, you are talking about this ripple through space-time mm-hmm. that travels outward at the speed of light. With gravity waves, you're talking about a wave that exists due to gravity. It's something that you would find on a planet, either in some sort of fluid system, whether it's an atmosphere or uh, like a body of water. So um, let's say you've got an ocean and you've got uh, wind blowing across the surface of that ocean. It starts to uh, disturb the water. Gravity is pulling down on the surface of that water. And uh, water's buoyancy is acting in uh, opposition to gravity. And that, combined with the wind, creates a wind-driven um, wave. That would be a gravity wave. It's a wave that exists because gravity is there. If there were no gravity, there wouldn't even be a body of water there. Uh, that is a gravity wave. Totally different from a gravitational wave. It's just a physical wave uh, that you can observe through some for- form of fluidic system. And so if you ever hear someone say gravity wave instead of gravitational wave as a matter of shorthand, they are technically being incorrect. You should probably find a polite way to say maybe you meant gravitational wave. <laughs> or you could be like me and just let's be, be a jerk. Let's be frank. There's no polite way to say that. Yeah. <laughs> I gave up on being polite years ago. So I, I just try to caution other people not to make the same choices I made. Um, uh, but – yeah, there's some some other interesting things about gravitational waves. Uh, they pass through stuff, so they'll like we said, yeah, yeah. They they don't act like uh, electromagnetic waves. Yeah, they don't get absorbed or reflected, so they just poop, keep on right. going. So if you've got, for example, a planet between you and electromagnetic radiation, such as light from the sun, you will experience an eclipse because the planet blocks it. Right. But it will not block these gravity waves. Exactly, it won't. It won't eclipse the uh, the the movement of waves toward mm-hmm. you. The waves will get weaker as they propagate out over distance, though. Yes, and uh, so if you're talking about a gravitational wave that has a, you know it has happened because of some massive event that's a billion light years away, they are very very faint by the time they get to to Earth, uh, and. That also leads to why they've been so tricky to detect. Not only are they invisible, but they're not very strong. So we have to look for gravitational waves that have been caused by really, really big events, like in the case of the one that LIGO uh, detected in September 2015. It was the collision of two black holes. It's a pretty big event. Mm-hmm. Uh, others could be two neutron stars that are orbiting one another rapidly, which would create kind of an oscillating and continuous uh, series of gravitational waves. Um, or it could be like a supernova exploding. That would do it. Uh, a Big Bang. That would do it too. 
In fact, uh, that was what Bicep 2 was looking for, was uh, the evidence of gravity waves from the era of the Big Bang. I just caught you in it. What? You oh, did I say gravity? gravity waves. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, I, I, uh, I stand corrected. I sit corrected <laughs> here in my I've chair. I've got a hat for you to eat. Thank you. I, uh, well, and I'll, as soon as I get the foot out of my mouth, I will start chewing upon the hat. Uh, yes, gravitational wave, not gravity wave. Uh, but no, it's true that they have been so difficult to detect and that we've had to uh, come up with very interesting methods of trying to detect them involving laser interferometry. Yeah. Uh, so here's here's something that's really cool about a gravitational wave. Because it's this ripple in space-time, it actually is a small – you can think of it like a small fold in space-time, Right. And that means it can actually change the distance between two points by compressing that distance or expanding it like a rubber band. So you've got like a piece of elastic uh, or, or if you prefer, you know, just just imagine that, um, Joe, you and I are standing across a football field from one another. You are on one end zone. I'm in the other end zone. They're end zones in football, right? I'm just looking for – there's no help from the peanut it's gallery. It's the one with the oblong spheroid, right? Yes, that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, a soccer field if you prefer. But at any rate, no, we're at, we're at either end. Gravitational wave passes through. Let's say it's a massive gravitational wave, something way bigger than we would ever actually observe here on Earth. What would appear to happen is that Joe and I, from our perspectives, it would look like we got closer and then further apart and then closer and then further apart without ever taking a step in either direction. That the our the the world itself has compressed and expanded around us because of this fold in space time that's passing through, mm-hmm. which sounds like some serious like matrix style stuff. Uh, yeah. But either fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how uh, you know stable you like your reality, uh, that's that's that kind of dr- dramatic change is not what we observe from gravitational waves. Right, not at all, not even remotely in the same football field, as it were. Uh, no, instead, if you were to have something like a supernova explosion, uh, and I should say an asymmetric supernova explosion, for reasons I don't understand, a symmetrical supernova does not, uh, a supernova explosion does not, generate gravitational waves huh don't know why was reading it trying to find more information but it got to a point where the astrophysics got way too complicated for me to understand uh however what i do understand is that if there were a supernova explosion in our galaxy in the milky way uh the gravitational waves generated from that would only be powerful enough to change the distance between earth and the sun by the diameter of one hydrogen atom that's how much it would oscillate oh yeah Okay. You probably would notice. <laughs> so it's, this is like a princess in the pea kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, um, definitely. So definitely on that level. Obviously, we need to build a more sensitive princess. <laughs> that's that's the you know that's entirely the plot. Of, yeah, uh, yeah. We're we're, once we're about upon a mattress. <laughs> you know, there's a whole musical about that. Oh, I didn't. I, I've yeah. Never seen it. I'll, I'll really, they you. build a robot princess that no, can sense anything. No, she just she any just, number of mattresses. They just they just uh, uh, collude to make her uncomfortable so that she uh, she complains about the uh, the lumpiness of the mattress, and it turns out that there's not just a pea under there. There's also a suit of armor and a shield ah, and a sword. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert for any of you who yeah. are really looking forward to what's upon a mattress. Yeah, uh, uh, but, but but I suppose they did kind of create like a laser princess. So yeah, but we'll get into that. So yeah. anyway, so so I just mentioned that if you're looking at the Earth and the Sun, 
you're talking about the difference of uh, the diameter of a hydrogen atom in the distance, which is incredible to think about. But it, that that change, that difference in distance, gets smaller as you get uh, to smaller scales. So let's talk about if you were on Earth and trying to measure this, because this gets to why it has been so challenging to detect gravitational waves here on Earth. Okay, don't use a football field analogy. Okay, what, what, what about? I don't the, need to. How about the beginning and end of the line for Space Mountain? <laughs> that, that's a cue that goes like yeah that one already loops around back on itself in weird ways yeah it's not really gonna work no i don't need to make that comparison i was just to to establish the weirdness of what happens but no i, I wanted to just talk about the scale so if you were talking about here on earth and you're trying to measure that that uh change in reality that change in distance because the space-time continuum is being folded in this ripple uh, if you had two objects that are about a kilometer apart, the change in distance they would experience due to that gravitational wave would be thousandths of the diameter of a proton. <laughs> so take a subatomic particle and go a teeny tiny fraction of the diameter of that subatomic particle, and that's how much difference in uh, distance it yeah. would experience. Yeah, get get out your, your proton knife and your proton measuring set yeah. and... It turns out your ruler is not going to be terribly helpful in that case. So that is one of the reasons why it's been so incredibly challenging to detect a, a, the presence of a gravitational wave. And so. and we, we've had a few leads or, if you prefer, a few false starts in detecting them throughout history. Mm-hmm. Back in 1969, University of Maryland physicist Joseph Weber created this, this six-foot aluminum cylinder that he claimed would act like an antenna for gravitational waves. He said that when such a wave hit the cylinder, it would ring like a tuning fork. But nobody else could replicate his results. It was Mm. a kind of neat-looking device, though. There's uh, actual video of this, and it looked kind of like a mirrored tube inside another tube. Like, there was, like, some sort of crazy physics disco going on inside there. Uh, Or at least that's what I like to think. Uh, Back in 1974, there were a pair of scientists uh, in Puerto Rico who saw a, a binary pulsar system and they looked at the theory of general relativity, which predicted that such a system would gradually lose energy due to the, to emitting gravitational waves. Some of its energy would go into creating these gravitational waves. And because you have a system losing energy, it would start to lose speed. And so they said, well, based upon this prediction, we should observe this change in speed as long as we keep an eye on this binary pulsar system. Mm-hmm. So they tracked it for eight years. At the end of that eight-year period, they said the behavior of the binary pulsar system was completely in line with the predictions from general relativity. They said it is behaving precisely the way it would if, in fact, gravitational waves are a reality. Therefore, this is in support of gravitational waves. And even since then, uh, over the 40 years of observations that have happened uh, with this binary pulsar system, those predictions continued to be supported. So that was great, uh, you know, indirect evidence of gravitational waves saying, well, if they don't exist, something else must be happening for the system to slow down the way it is. But the thing that makes most sense is that Einstein was right. Uh, then we move ahead quite a bit. Uh, let's talk about BICEP2. Now, BICEP2 was going a different way about looking for gravitational waves. They were specifically looking for evidence 
of uh, that would support a, a hypothesis called cosmic inflation. Mm-hmm. And inflation is a big deal in physical cosmology today. This is a, I think most physical cosmologists look at inflation as very promising theory. Yeah, and the the whole reason why we have this this idea in the first place is to explain why the universe appears the way it does while also trying to reconcile that with the Big Bang Theory. Mm-hmm. Because uh, it, I'm not going to get too far into the weeds here, but the basically uh, the, the hypothesis says that about 10 to the negative 36 seconds, <laughs> so take a 10 and then take a, a decimal point and move that, 36 places to the left. Yeah, get get that proton knife out again and yeah. use it to divide up a second. Right, that's that's where you get down to the teeny, tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of a second to about 10 to the negative 33rd or 32nd power uh, seconds. So so in an instant, as far as we're concerned. An like, instant of an instant. Yeah. that At that moment, that's when the universe underwent rapid expansion. Mm-hmm. Uh, far greater than the the rate of expansion it currently is going through. And it's expanding fast today. Yeah. Uh, actually, and it's picking up speed, which is a little, uh, or at least according to our measurements, it's picking up speed. But uh-huh. that's that's something that we hope gravitational waves will help us learn more about in the future. At any rate, a, a scientist named Alan Guth proposed a hypothesis to explain why the universe looks the way it does and stay in line with the Big Bang Theory. It was kind of like, well, in order for us to be where we are now, based upon the observations of the universe we have made so far, and in order for the Big Bang Theory to make any sense whatsoever, there had to be this period of cosmic inflation or else it just doesn't work out. The math doesn't work out. Mm -hmm. And... In a way, you could argue, well, this is almost like a placeholder, except, again, it's kind of like Einstein. You know, it's using logic, saying, well, we we know about this. We're pretty sure about this other thing. But in order for those two things to reconcile, this other, this third thing must have ha- happened at some point. Yeah, yeah. It's theoretically solving for X in this equation. Yeah. And if you fast forward 380,000 years after the Big Bang... Uh, you then have the emergence of the cosmic microwave background, or CMB. Now, this is uh, radiation that's sort of a, a fingerprint left over from the from the era after the Big Bang. It's from it's when the universe was still seeing birdies, like in the cartoon. <laughs> the universe really wasn't seeing anything. It was so dense that even light couldn't pass through it at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is it's sort of the remnant of that era, and we can we can detect the cosmic microwave background. So BICEP two, I didn't mention this either. BICEP actually stands for Background Imaging of Cosmic Extragalactic Polar was looking for polarized cosmic microwave background radiation. The idea being that uh, gravitational waves should have aligned certain segments of the CMB. So if you could detect that, then that would be indirect evidence of gravitational waves and therefore also indirect evidence of this cosmic inflation idea. Because something as dramatic as cosmic inflation would have generated gravitational waves and they would have left their mark on something like the CMB. And they the team thought they found it. Uh they actually thought they found it a couple of years before the the news broke. They they spent years trying to verify the information they found to make sure that they eliminated other possibilities. They went uh public with the uh the uh announcement I think March of 2014. And it was September 2014 when other teams came out and said 
Hey guys. We think it might hey. be the presence of space dust yeah. that has uh, at least complicated your findings, if not discredited them. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and that's, you know, they, they had opened up their research to that kind of scientific scrutiny. They, they were basically saying, hey, y'all, would you please check this for us? And yes. so that's and that's the process of science. And that's really what Jonathan and I talked about in our exactly. previous episode about yeah. BICEP. Let's be responsible scientists, folks. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what was going on here, which sometimes leads to disappointing outcomes. But it's better than uh, being wrong <laughs> and just sticking to being wrong. And and even even disproving an outcome can be fascinating in, in terms of research progress moving forward. Right. So in the case of BICEP2, we're talking about using telescopes to try and detect uh, the presence of gravitational waves through its effects on other stuff. But what about just trying to detect the presence of gravitational waves themselves? Not look at how it's affecting something else, but somehow detecting their presence here on Earth. So let me guess. You get two things... And you put them a kilometer apart and you watch them real close to see if they vary by the width of a thousandth of a proton. Uh, very close. You actually have to get at least three things. <laughs> uh, and then you have to uh, watch them very close with lasers. Oh. So this was an idea that was proposed by Ray Weiss. Um, he suggested creating a laser interferometer system to detect any sort of distortion in space time. And, uh, it's a really brilliant and elegant solution to a difficult problem. Uh, yeah, and and he started working on this along with one of uh, the other people who had become a lead on the project, Kip Thorne. Uh, Kip Thorne, by the way, good name, good good job, Kip Thorne's parents. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, so, so they they got their start way back in 1975 when the two of them happened to share a hotel room at a conference and wound up just staying up all night chattering about gravitational waves. And I have a feeling that is not what's going to happen to me at South by Southwest. I know. Uh, anyway, uh, so so Thorne wound up pulling in Ronald Drever, whose whose original idea I think it was to use lasers for this. And the work was originally out of Caltech because Weiss, who was at MIT at the time, couldn't convince MIT that black holes were cool enough to study. Wah, wah, set your bone. Yeah, he, uh, he, he says, by the way, that MIT has since, like, gotten better. <laughs> so LIGO is the, the pair of observatories that uh, was responsible for detecting this particular gravitational wave. Have you seen a picture of one of the LIGO facilities? Yes. They're really cool looking. Yeah, they They're look like, like a giant V. Or an L. Yeah. so. Uh, Depends on your perspective, I yeah. suppose. I guess, I guess so. I always thought of it L, not V shape, but I understand entirely. Um, the, so LIGO, uh, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, uh, its purpose wasn't to look for uh, gravitational waves that were responsible during, uh, or were a result rather of cosmic inflation. Uh, they're looking for things that happened after the Big Bang, things like black holes colliding or these neutron stars that are uh, in orbit around one another, that sort of stuff, those those sort of gravitational waves. Uh, the presence of gravitational waves that are actively passing through Earth, that's what these are looking for. Yeah, and so they're so, not telescopes. So the discovery that was announced in February 2016 is – in, though they're both involving gravitational waves, they were sort of fundamentally different discoveries between that and the one from 2014. Yes. So uh, some interesting stuff about LIGO. It originally went online in 2002. 
Um, and it was the largest project to ever be funded by the National Science Foundation at that time. Uh, they've spent over the past 40 years about $1.1 billion in pursuit of this. Yep. And like I mentioned before, there are two observing stations. One is in Louisiana and the other is in Washington. They are almost 2,000 miles apart. I'll talk more about exactly how far they are <laughs> a little bit later. But uh, uh, the two stations are necessary to confirm the presence of gravitational waves uh, you want that same observation to be picked up by both facilities within like 10 milliseconds of one another for it to be considered a potential gravitational wave hit. Uh, right, because otherwise, you know, like a really big truck passing by could, yeah. could possibly set off one of the monitors. It could be a seismic activity. It could be anything that would uh, jitter the system, if you will. And if one of them picks it up and the other one doesn't, then that tells you it was probably a localized event that gave a false positive at one observatory. If both of them pick it up, again, within 10 milliseconds of each other, and it's clearly the same frequency wave... Then we know it's not a giant crayfish attack in the Louisiana location. That's right. It's probably... Well, we're pretty sure. Probably not jambalaya-related yeah. at that point. <laughs> unless they've unless they've colluded Ooh. with, with Those what? colluding with the, crawfish. With the Sasquatch of Man. Washington, right? Yeah. Crawfish collusion. Man, I gotta find your stash... Of cough medication <laughs> because I want whatever you're on. So no, you don't. Let's talk about the. So I don't want the cold. That's true. Uh, let's talk about the the actual facility. So I I think of them as being L shaped because they're they are uh, the two branches or two arms of this facility are at a ninety degree angle mm-hmm. from one another. And maybe because LIGO starts with an L. That also a helps. A little bit of priming there. Yeah, that oh. probably probably helps. You're right. They are at a 90-degree angle, but it's this giant 90-degree angle with arms stretching way out into the into the fields. Yeah. So there's one that goes under uh, a little road. Uh-huh. Did you see that one? Yeah. It goes like, there's like a <laughs> – they built a little tunnel that the arm goes through and a road passes over it. And by road, I mean like a dirt road. I'm not talking like a highway or something. Uh, so each branch of the L, each arm of the L, is two and a half miles or four kilometers long, and uh, it's actually a vacuum tube. They pump out all the air uh, in the facility in order to uh, avoid any kind of uh, absorption, refraction, or anything like that. Any any interference that atmosphere could uh, create while you're firing a laser down this tube. And they actually have a beam splitter. So they have a single laser that generates a laser beam. It hits a beam splitter. The beam splitter splits the beam, as the name would indicate, into two. One goes down one branch. The other one goes down the other branch. Remember, they're perpendicular to each other. Each branch has a series of mirrors in it. So the lasers bounce off the mirrors and return back to the crux of the L. And there, because they're both from the same laser, they have the same wavelength, they cancel one another out. That's where the interferometry comes in. Yes. So they, they interfere with one another. They end up uh, creating uh, – well, because they cancel out, there's no more light that's emitted through the um, the that area. And they have a, a light detector. So the light detector would detect if any laser light came through. But as long as everything is going perfectly well, they cancel each other out. But what if somebody were to come along and shorten one of those long arms a little bit? Well, then one laser would travel a shorter distance than the other laser, and those wavelengths would be out of alignment. And then you would get some laser light coming out from that, and the light detector would pick it up and say, hey, uh, things are hinky. So when a gravitational wave moves through, 
what happens is one arm will start to get longer while another arm will start to get shorter and then they alternate because they're perpendicular to one another and that's the way the wave propagates across the, the facility. That's why you have an L shape in the first place because with that 90 degree perpendicular alignment means one side is going to always be getting shorter while the other one's getting longer as a gravitational wave passes through. So that means that while the wave is passing through, the laser on one side is traveling a shorter distance than the laser on the other side, and that ends up creating this mismatch of wavelengths, and you get the light leaking through, the light detector picks it up, and and, and then you've got data to analyze. And you can say, all right, we've got a hit. Let's find out if our, our uh, counterparts at the other observatory also picked this up. And if they did, then that's a potential gravitational wave. And it's really elegant approach to detecting something like this. And it's incredibly precise. So I was watching a video where one of the engineers was talking about the measurements that are made by this. And they said, when we talk about differences in distance, we're talking about a distance of uh, 10 to the minus 19th power meters small. So again, you take a, take the number 10, take a decimal place, move it to the left 19 times, Put meter behind it. That's the distance we're talking about for, uh, you know, that, that has to be measured uh, when one of these gravitational waves passes through. And they're passing through at, uh, at a fraction of a second. So it's an incredibly precise, very fast measurement that has to take place in order for even one of the observatories to say, we got a hit. But as we mentioned earlier, if only one of them has a hit, we know that that's probably a false positive. Yeah, right? it's probably a localized event. That's, that's a crayfish positive. attack in, yeah. L- in Louisiana. Right. Or possibly Washington, in which case it will make the news. Uh-huh. In Louisiana, it's old hat. But in Washington, that would be unusual. Uh, so, yeah, because they are so far apart, by specifically it's 1,865 miles between the two, or 3,002 kilometers that light does take a little longer to get to one versus the other. It all depends on what, what direction the gravitational wave is coming from, but there will be a delay. It's a tiny delay, again, less than 10 milliseconds, but it's enough of a delay that if there is that amount of time between the two and they're picking up the same uh, frequency wave or same frequency in, in this uh, interference, then that suggests that they've found a gravitational wave. Mm-hmm. And now this kind of precision means that they had to go through a, a little bit of a of a growth period before they could really get these things working. Yeah, so here's here's the bad news they had to give. The the facility came online in 2002. By 2010 it was clear that the instrumentation they were using was not going to be precise enough to pick up gravitational waves. It didn't matter how long they left it on, it was just not precise enough. And they had to go back to the drawing board and say, we're going to need to upgrade these facilities in order for them to be capable of detecting this. If, in fact, gravitational waves are a thing, then we're going, and we we know that they are, but in order for us to detect them, we're going to have to get more precise. So in 2010, LIGO goes offline, and there was an international collaboration that took five years of work to overhaul and upgrade LIGO until they got advanced LIGO. Or A-LIGO. Yeah. Uh, so With a little a. It, the observatories came back online in September 2015, and literally days after turning on, they detected a gravitational wave. 
So think about this for a second. The gravitational wave they detected was from a pair of black holes colliding. That pair of black holes collided 1.3 billion years ago. And that means that the black holes were, by definition, 1.3 billion light years away from Earth because, again, gravitational waves travel at the speed of light. So 1.3 billion years ago, 1.3 billion light years away, two black holes collided and the facility came online just days earlier at uh, you know in, in on earth 1.3 billion years later to catch it that's like the biggest dartboard you can imagine <laughs> <laughs> with the tiniest bullseye and you are miles away and you just happen to throw it perfectly well so that it catches the air and flies over and hits that bullseye. Now, granted, that is pretty amazing, but it also it's a big universe. It is a big universe. And people have said that things like the black holes colliding events of that nature happen in the universe on the order of about every 15 minutes. But it all depends on when and where they happened. Right. right? Like, if it happened a billion years ago, but it's four billion light years away, it'll be three billion more years before those gravitational waves make it to Earth. Uh-huh. So, because the universe is big, yes, these things happen all the time, but they don't hit Earth all the time. Yeah, it was still pretty cool. Yeah, it's really, really cool. So cool that I, I remember... On the day it was announced, one of the people working at LIGO said, yeah, at first we thought that they might have been testing the system again. And then we checked, and no one was testing the system. And we were like, whoa, (laughs) it works. And so uh, that was just one of those like uh, great fortuitous moments. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, it it was uh, very exciting. Of course, they wanted to take time to confirm it, to validate the information which is why we did not hear about it till February 11th, 2016. So it was uh, some time later before we got a chance to find out what the big discovery was. You know, one of the cool things to me about this uh, this observation, they called it a chirp. Yeah. The, the thing that they detected of the gravitational waves. And because it's a wave with a, a certain number, number of oscillations per second represented as hertz, you can actually represent this chirp as sound, which people have done. There, I, I watched one YouTube video that was a compilation of different uh, scientists and people who were involved with the project doing doing little chirps, doing their little gravitational wave chirps with their mouths and oh with devices goodness. and stuff. I'm yeah. so glad I didn't make one of those videos. I'd be so tempted just to do the whole stupid Rickroll thing. If... So the Louisiana Observatory detected that gravitational wave first, and seven milliseconds later, the Washington Observatory detected it. So that's what when they were able to say, yes, this does appear to be a gravitational wave. And they used triangulation to determine where did this come from. And they they determined that it was coming from the southern hemisphere skies. Um, And that's what led them to the, the conclusion of, hey, you know, we this this is working. We understand where this is coming from. And even what's causing it, which was really cool. Uh, but that wasn't all they were able to tell about it from the data collected. In fact, they were able to look at the data they had and say what they think happened to cause these gravitational waves. Yeah, yeah. Like, so let, it's hard to explain how huge a moment this is. It's, it's very difficult to kind of put that into words, but keep in mind that Black holes, while we understand they are a thing, it's not something that we directly observe, right? But you can't see a black hole 
Because <laughs> that's rather the point. Yeah, they really you really can't. You can see the effects. No, nothing of black reflects holes. off of them, and nothing escapes from them. Right. So yeah. Yeah, you can you can see how gas clouds behave in vicinity Around of black them. holes. Yeah, yeah, you know, like in the Kessel Run. You can see gravitational lensing. Yes, you can see gravitational lensing. Uh, but you know, this is about as strong evidence for the existence of black holes as you can get without sending Matthew McConaughey through one. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly. <laughs> the strongest evidence for binary black holes where you have two colliding with one another and the data picked up matched the calculations that uh, that people had made based upon the the knowledge of general relativity and physics about what would happen with these two black holes so well that it was phenomenal so reality and math were actually agreeing with one another which is fantastic they determined the black holes in question uh, were pretty pretty b- big, not like supermassive black holes. We're not talking about the kind that would be at the center of a galaxy or anything. But one had 29 times the mass of our sun and the other 36 times the sun's mass. And right before they collided, they were circling each other 250 times a second. Um, during the actual collision, which took place over about a fifth of a second, they blobbed together and then coalesced into like a smooth sphere in a process that's called ring down. Oh, and man. Ring down? Ring down. And it's, and it's this process uh, in which three solar masses worth of energy was vaporized that that caused the gravitational waves that we observed. Um, the, the resulting black hole, by the way, is therefore only 62 times the mass of the sun, being that three masses just went poof. Yeah, and when you think about energy equals mass times the speed of light squared, and you think three solar masses uh-huh. <laughs> vaporized, that's that's an unimaginably huge amount of energy, right? Like, it's so enormous that I can't even begin to think about it. So that's, I won't. Yeah, yeah. That, but but yeah, if, if you're wondering how something that was that far away propagated all the way to Earth, that's why. So, again, remarkable that this facility even picked up the signal in the first place, considering that, you know, it all has to be timed out where... This thing that happened 1.3 billion years ago, 1.3 billion light years away, uh, just the observatory coming online when it did, like all of that is pretty phenomenal stuff. Yeah, and they almost didn't do the engineering run during which the signal was found. Uh, Just uh, three days prior, the Livingston antenna was getting some radio interference, and Weiss actually recommended that they put off the run. But his colleagues there were like, nah. Let's let's go ahead. Yeah, we think it's ready. So it's, don't worry about it. Uh, the nice thing is that we know eventually this would have worked anyway. Right? Sure, but it was still just it, just one of those cool stories about how much came into alignment to allow it to happen so early when it came back online. It's a great story for science. Well, one of the things that I have definitely heard uh, reported from some of the people involved in the project is that the signal was much stronger than they expected it to be. Like they, uh, they were able to see the signal clearly in the data with the naked eye, just looking at the data. They're like, oh, there it is. Mm-hmm. When what they thought they were going to have to do was like run a, you know, computational analysis across all the data and compare it to, uh, to random noise generated as a sort of cross reference and see if it maybe was a gravitational wave. But no, it was just obvious. Which is, Amazing. And so this is kind of wrapping up our initial discussion about gravitational waves. In our next episode, we're going to talk a little bit more about the specifics of what LIGO found. I'm going to talk a little bit about some uh, 
angular momentum in that episode. We'll also talk about what does this mean and the rise of a new type of astronomy, gravitational astronomy, which is literally in its infancy right now. Uh, and what could this possibly mean for the future? That'll be in our next episode. Guys, if you have suggestions for future episodes of Forward Thinking, I recommend you write us and tell us. Because if you've been putting messages in bottles and throwing them in the ocean, one, you're littering. Stop it. And two, they're not getting to us. So write Atlanta us. Atlanta is landlocked. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, be careful about sushi in Atlanta. That's all I'm saying. No, send us your, your thoughts through email. Our address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter. On Twitter, we're fwthinking. Just search fwthinking in Facebook. You'll see our page popping up. You can leave us a message there. And we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.